This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. news this week. I have not been paying attention to the news this week. Um, me neither. I have nothing. I have nothing to update. Anywhere. You can just dive right in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I think you're first today. Okay, if you're ready. Okay. Alright, let's do it.2017 in Newton, Wisconsin. The fourth child, the fourth sibling, was placed elsewhere. It didn't specify on why they weren't all placed together. Maybe the home was too small or something like that, but it, yeah. I did find it strange that they could take in, you know, Ethan and his, you know, some of his siblings, but not all. Yeah, that's weird. Um, and then Ethan was actually Timothy's biological great nephew, so that we would think would help, you know, being placed with family. Um, yeah, it, it didn't though, unfortunately. Um, Ethan was seven years old when he was placed in their care, and then in their home was Damien. Um, he was the son of Tiffany, or I'm sorry, Timothy and Tina, um, and he was 14 years old at that time. So Timothy uh, was their was his legal guardian um, because he was placed in their home as you know foster care happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was an ideal father figure for these children. He had many dark run-ins with the law. Um, at the age of 15, he quote unquote whacked a man. 
with a tire iron in a bar fight involving older members of his family. Um, at the age of 18, he helped acquaintances beat up a man until the, the person was, uh, you know, he required three days of intensive care. Uh, so he was just beaten to a pulp, basically. Oh, wow. A year after that, Timothy grabbed a clerk at a Two Rivers convenience store, uh, flashed a long-bladed butcher knife, and made that clerk empty the cash register. And he, I mean, it was only $211, or $211, but I mean, to him, that was worth it, just, you know, traumatizing somebody at work. So that was... Basically, How do you become a foster parent with these charges? Yeah, so we're going to get into that later, which is just like... Okay. I'm shocked. Really, yeah, it's really sad just because he clearly had a, a laundry list of uh, things that he's done and run-ins with the law, and they still found him, you know, a reliable and an example of you know being a fatherly figure to children i don't get it me either so while he was being sentenced for five and a half years for the latest crime um a manitowoc county district attorney at that time told the judge the only thing this court can do to protect society from him is to put him in prison so this DA literally said, lock this man up and throw away the key, and then social services handed him kids to take care of. Wow. So Tina, on the other hand, she was fairly normal. Nothing really, no rap sheets on her, um, but she was gone from the home a lot. She was out of the house attending community college in Green Bay. Okay. So she, which is unfortunate because she obviously had her own kids in the home, but didn't really care for them that much. Mm. So that's where like the neglect comes into. Mm. Um, So Timothy was often out of the home working as well, running errands and just kind of being absent too. Um, Okay. They would force the older children to take on the role of caretakers, leaving them to figure out how to take care of themselves, how to take care of the little ones, like just basically fend for yourselves is what the the atmosphere was. That's terrible. My kids wouldn't make it one day. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not like, I'm sure they would, but it's not like it's, you can't just leave them to be an adult figure for little children you know you can't do that no if i leave them at home alone they're messaging me like what do you think i should eat (laughs) how long do i need to put the microwave on for (laughs) the dryer made a weird noise do you think my clothes are okay like there's always something (laughs) right so it's really nice to have somebody or you know a guardian dependable there for you and so and it's sad because these kids lack that. Um, and it's yeah. the most, you know, for you, it's so natural to be like there for your kids, even if it's small or random questions like that. So it's yeah, crazy to me that they weren't there for them. Yeah, me too. Some people are selfish though. That's very true. Um, so when the adults were in the home, Timothy, Timothy imposed bizarre and abusive punishments. His choice of punishments kind of were just cruel and unusual. Uh, He frequently punished them by making them walk laps around the yard carrying heavy logs, which he had picked out himself, um, and then just said, you know, carry this log back and forth for these for half an hour or whatever. That's like what he would, that was his preferred method of punishment, which is weird. Yeah, I could see it though. (laughs) (laughs) 
so this punishment would be served for something as small as them not knowing their Bible verses. Um, so that was really weird. Um, that is really, the, that's really weird. Yeah, I could see that it, for like hyperactivity. Like you're too right. wound up. You need to burn some energy. Go in the yard like, and do something physical. Right, like burn this off. I totally get yeah. that. But it was yeah. just more like for his like own pleasure, it seemed like, just mm -hmm. watching them like struggle. And mind you, uh, what am I trying to say? Ethan was seven. He was the oldest out of his siblings. So yeah. the younger ones would have to do this too. And it wasn't just branches. It was like full on logs. So that that's, it's a little weird to me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely little kids like that is really weird. Teenagers, hmm, some days. Yeah, like do some push-ups. You're starting to annoy me. Yeah, push-ups are good. <laughs> yeah. And so then the constant abuse and neglect made for like a cosmic storm for any child, really. Um, but especially Damien, who was... Tiffany or Timothy's and Tina's uh, biological child who was oftentimes the caretaker of the little ones okay so he's just he stated at one point that he felt a burning anger inside which is never good no um, <laughs> no. Mm -hmm. no. Um, no if your kid ever tells you that please seek help because it's just not a good road that they're going down um, yeah, it's good that he can identify his emotions. Yeah, well, this is going to make you not root for him. So so he oftentimes punched inanimate objects to release his constant anger, which is fine. You know, like a lot of kids do that. They punch holes in the wall, and I'm not a fan of that, but like they do it. Or like yeah. they'll punch their pillow, whatever. Yeah. Um. Damien's anger issues got him into trouble outside of his home, too, as he was expelled for breaking the nose of an older student. So it was just, it, it was getting to the point where it was affecting his outside life, too. Yeah, it um, usually does. Yeah, so he wanted to show physical toughness so that people would fear him. And then mm -hmm. in my armchair opinion, oftentimes when an adolescent or a teen is acting out, it, it stems from like treatment from the home. Most yep. of the times that child feels like they lack control. They feel mm -hmm. small. They want to project that to others so that they can feel superior in some aspect of their life. Yeah, I agree. So on this particular day at home, Ethan was being punished for mouthing off to his teacher at school. His, punish his punishment was to carry wood for hours through mud and slush left over from a late season storm that had dumped nearly a foot of snow. Each step was a struggle as his tiny body was fighting with all of his might to carry such a large object. So he, you know, he's small, this log, was about 44 pounds so that's it, a big log was, yeah it's not like a like a twig by any means um but that wasn't all that he endured as his basically foster brother Damien um would constantly strike him taunt him jab him kick him um while he was carrying this log just to basically further push this punishment out on him. And then on top of that, Damien became frustrated because Ethan kept dropping the log every, you know, five, 10 minutes because he got tired or yeah. because he couldn't, you know, just hold on. He anymore. physically couldn't hold it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
he was getting upset. Damien was not only becoming frustrated, but was also being ordered by his father, Timothy, to, quote, force Ethan to complete his punishment. So every time that he dropped it, he'd say, you have to make him finish. So that only amps Damien up even more, you know, having his father mm-hmm. basically saying, like, you need to have him do this punishment and knowing what kind of household he was in maybe he was fearful for himself or whatever the case may be yeah so knowing that this was happening timothy and tina left to run errands leaving the smaller children in the care of damien um damien's tormenting hitting kicking poking ethan and repeated shoving his little body to the crowd to the ground um kind of switched gears in Damien's head so after a while it was kind of like punishment but it switched to fun for him so this is a, where he was letting off a little bit of his you know anger and basically control this is where he was releasing that so he then ordered little Ethan to lay face down in a puddle Damien took Ethan's jacket and boots off and stood on top of his body and his head and then Damien then rolled the 44 pound log across Ethan's chest furthering his pain and agony when Ethan became unresponsive, he thought that the boy was just resisting, just kind of playing. So then he ended up, which I don't understand the logic on this, but I'm not a 14-year-old boy, um, you know, having some issues. But he buried him under about 80 pounds of packed snow and ice without his coat and boots, still thinking like he's just, he's just playing, you know? Yeah. So Timothy and Tina returned home and saw Ethan's body. They left him out there. He was then carried into the house, then driven to Holy Family Memorial Medical Center. And at 9.22 p.m. on April 20th, 2018, a doctor pronounced Ethan deceased. So... The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office determined Ethan died from hypothermia and a blunt force and blunt force injury to his head, chest, abdomen, and he suffered a rib fracture as well. Um, they're thinking that it was mostly uh, obviously being buried alive in snow and and ice, and it was mostly the the log that truly crushed him. Yeah. It's horrible. I I just can't fathom this, you know, like, I don't know. I, it doesn't make sense to me in my brain, but not a lot of, or not any of these cases really make sense in my brain. So. Right. Ethan went in custody and questioned by the investigators on this case seemed disassociated and a little bit evil in my opinion. Investigators asked Damien how much snow was covering Ethan, and then Damien replied by saying he was like in his own little coffin of snow, and then he started laughing. So I just think that he had like no, I I don't know, I honestly don't know what this kid's deal was, but obviously the environment that he was growing up in was molding him into something that happened here. That's how a lot of killers get started. You grow up with no love or affection, uh, then you deal with abuse and neglect, and you never know how to have any empathy for anyone else or even see anyone else as, like, having any feelings. Right, or, like, you know, this this really is hurting this person. Maybe I should stop. But, like, they don't have that, and clearly... He didn't have this even for his own blood, you know, it, there wasn't nothing there. Yeah. Um, and just so you guys have some perspective, Ethan was about four uh, feet tall and eight 
or four and eight inches tall, weighing about 60 to 62 pounds. And Damien was about 5'11 and 168 pounds. So well, he was a big kid. Yeah. So he doubled, you know, tripled his size or Ethan's size. So there was no chance of him defending himself like no. at all. So when he was stepping on his body, he was truly crushing him. That's horrible. So Damien pleaded guilty to first degree reckless homicide, but as a part of his plea agreement, three counts of child abuse and intentionally causing harm and three counts of substantial battery were dismissed but read into the record. Manitowoc County District Attorney Jacqueline Labrie says the state requested a sentence of 12 to 17 years. The maximum sentence was 40 years in prison and 20 years on extended supervision. And of course, the legal guardians had fault in the senseless murder as well, um, just because they were so absent, they gave control to this disturbed, you know, kid. They yeah. had blame. Um, it just should have never had happened, and they should have never been placed with these people either. No, I, I still can't understand how they got placed with them. So Tina, at the age of 38, pleaded no contest to felony counts of failure to prevent mental harm to the child, child abuse, and failure to, uh, to prevent great harm. Thankfully, she was found guilty, but the victory was short-lived as she was only sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, Tina tearfully pleaded for forgiveness and blamed her actions on being abused as a child herself, which, okay. Um, then don't have a bunch of kids in your home if you can't take care of them. Yeah. Get help for your own issues before you have kids. Yeah, and especially, like, you can have kids of your own, but why are you bringing in outside kids if you don't have the ability to give them what they need? Because you get paid for having outside kids. That's fucked. That's fucked. Um, so, however, Manitowoc County Circuit Court Judge Gerilyn Dietz did not let Tina off that easily and reminded her of her culpability and stated, you were responsible for the care of these children. These children needed you and you failed them. So she basically said, stop your crying. You're an adult. You had a responsibility. You can't cry yourself out of this one. She's a good DA. Yeah. So Timothy at the age of 50 was charged with a uh, felony murder, child abuse, battery, contribution to delinquency that resulted in death. Uh, so then Damien's uncle, Robert Eklund, stated during the trial, I know this kid, I would trust him around my kids, and I wouldn't let him watch my kids, but I wouldn't let nobody watch my kids, but I wish people would get to know him. And I'm like, that is the most absurd comment that you can make. Like, <laughs> he's he's a good kid. I wouldn't let him watch my kids, but he's a good but kid. But you, you can let him watch your kids, but <laughs> mine, definitely. Mine, not so much. I have, you know, high standards for my kids. So I, I yeah. thought that was really irrelevant. I don't know why he had to make that comment. It didn't, in my opinion, didn't help. So no. Definitely not. But he also stated that Damien was living in a situation that was, quote, living under Hitler once his mother married Timothy. Oh, I guess that was not his biological father. I forgot to mention that before. Mm -hmm. um, that was his stepdad. So okay. it must have gotten worse when they got married. And then his, I don't know, his behavior must have molded because of Timothy's, you know, abuse. Yeah. 
So defense attorney Russell Jones suggested eight to 10 years for his client, Damien, but he was sentenced to 20 years in the state prison and 10 years of extended supervision. Good. Uh, so Manitou County Circuit Court Judge Gerilyn Dietz stated, my goal is to ensure that you are incarcerated for just long enough to mature and develop, to work on education, to work on treatment, work on controlling that angry side that again took full control in April 2018. We never want to see that take control again. So I think she was like trying to give him a a chance to say like, you did this when you were young. I hope that you can be, I don't know, you can recover, be a, a different adult, come out of this, yeah. maybe reformed and hopefully not being influenced by your stepdad maybe would help. Yeah. So Ethan's mother begged to differ though stating tearfully in court that the judge should impose a maximum sentence on Damien, which I can understand why she would feel that way. Yeah. District attorney Jacqueline Labrie had recommended 12 to 17 years, as I said earlier. Um, I did kind of get a little bit upset when she said um, that Damien Describing that day, Ethan was killed as not a very eventful day. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that what she said. So Ethan, I mean, Damien stated that it wasn't a very eventful day when he killed his basically foster brother. There's seriously so, something wrong with him. I know. It can't just be like, I don't know, household neglect and abuse. Like he's got some... He's got some issues. Yeah. More than just that, because he doesn't even realize, like, what bigger event could happen than that? You killed someone. Right. Yeah. So in an effort to see if Damien had learned from his mistakes, Ethan's biological mother requested him to write her a letter detailing what he has learned during his incarceration. Andrea stated that Damien has expressed that he is out of excuses for his role in the death of her son. So basically kind of just doesn't know what to say anymore. There was a silver lining to the story. Something positive did come from what horribly happened and the crime inspired State Senator and Andre Jacquois to author Ethan's Law the legislation is aimed at protecting children from being placed with known abusers like this. Ethan's law closes the loophole that allowed Ethan himself to be placed with a caregiver who had a history of violence. Under the bill, human services could not place a child with an adult who has been found guilty of abusing a child or plea bargain the crime to a lesser charge. The Senator stated, What happened to Ethan is unbelievably tragic. If the loopholes didn't exist, Ethan and his two siblings could not have been placed in his home and presumably Ethan would be still alive today. The system failed him and we owe it to his memory to put proper guidelines in place. And then the bill was signed into law by Governor Tony Evers. I don't understand how that had to be just passed now. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know. It was so senseless because, like he said- Okay, Wisconsin legislator needs to get it together, stop fighting over stupid shit, and make sure Mm -hmm. things like this don't happen. Right. Like, it's so simple. Like, it's like two plus two. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why wasn't this in place before? And why were they just so carelessly thrown into the care of these neglecting monsters I don't understand so that is the case of the murder of Ethan Heschultz poor little baby angel may he rest in peace the story made me really mad I know like it was now I I have burning anger (laughs) (laughs) 
this government. You take you take the children away because their mom yeah. is neglectful. Right. And you place them in an abusive household. Why don't you yeah. just help the mom get her shit together? Right. Or like, yeah, that that's true. It doesn't or, even And make if sense. they needed to be taken out of the home, put them with a good Decent. foster family. Yeah. It's not hard to <sighs> think, oh, this person has a rap sheet where they're clearly violent for no yeah. reason just to be violent. Yeah. Yeah, and let's not put kids with them. No. And like the the their other kid has gone into fights at school. Like that isn't also raised. Yeah, he's flags. been expelled from school, not just getting in fights, because you can get in a lot of fights before you get expelled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it was <laughs> a terrible, terrible senseless thing all around it should have never happened and he should have never you know died because there should have been more people concerned everybody involved should have been held accountable somehow yeah i don't know how like it didn't say anything about um the manitowoc county social services being like reprimanded or like at least investigated on why they did that like it said nothing (sighs) so that's it I'm here to just give you burning anger inside well you were successful I hate them all (laughs) but the judge Geraldine Dietz I said she's a good DA she's a judge now I like her (laughs) there you go all right I am going to be talking about Kathy Thompson She's from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and she was 38 years old when this story took place. So on February 25th in 2000, Kathy Thompson got married to Robert Miles, who she had been dating for several weeks. Married? Yeah, married. They were dating for several weeks and then got married. Yeah. I had to reread that like seven times. Like, okay, that's what it says. Several weeks to me sounds like three weeks. Because if they, it would have been like. exactly what I thought. Yeah. Four weeks would be a month. (laughs) Month, exactly. Okay, at least we were on the same page. And I think several just sounded better than than three. It kind of (laughs) does. Except to us. Yeah, right. Because we analyzed everything. Mm-hmm. So then the two went on to celebrate their new marriage at a local tavern. And then while at the tavern, they got into an argument. Apparently someone had came up to Kathy, said something that her new husband found inappropriate. They got in an argument. Robert is like, I'm going home. Why get mad at her? Like, what the fuck? I don't know. And he's like, fuck this, I'm going home. And Kathy did not appreciate this. So at 1.50 a.m., she went home and attacked her new husband. So Robert, bloody from the incident, contacted the police. So the police came and arrested Kathy for assault. And then Robert was also arrested for violating his probation. I should mention that Kathy was 6'1 and 184 pounds. She wasn't like teeny tiny five feet tall like you. (laughs) Right, yeah. She was a strong woman. Oh, I take offense to that. (laughs) No, you're a strong woman too. But I'm saying like, she's as tall as a man. Yes, she is. But you know what? You can climb a ladder and I can be as strong as a man. (laughs) You have to jump to punch men in the face. I've punched a man before and I don't have to jump. I can reach. I have long arms. Okay, I believe you. (laughs) 
actually no. Let me let me let me tell you the story. Actually, okay. So what you lack in size? Go ahead. No, I want you to finish that. What I lack in size? You make up for in feistiness. Yes, yes, that's correct. No, I punched this dude, and because I'm short, I actually didn't Mm -hmm. hit him that that good. And then we find I sat down next to him, and then I punched him again, and that was a good hit. So there is some. Mm-hmm. There, so sitting is key when you're short. Sitting is key, or high heels is key. Uh, you okay. need one or both. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I can all picture right, the whole thing happening. <laughs> okay. So Kathy would not be held in jail for long. At 2.40 a.m., she signed a waiver of rights. If you guys don't know, when you get arrested, they give you a little piece of paper. Will you tell us what happened? Sign this waiver that you don't need an attorney present before you tell us. She's like, whatever. Signed the waiver. And then she prepared her written statement telling them what happened, which she signed at 2.44. And then by 3 a.m., Kathy was released from jail and began walking towards her home. She was reportedly offered a ride home by police, but had declined. And the police said when she left the jail, she still had some of Robert's blood matted in her hair. Oh my God. It sounds like a very violent altercation that they had. It's not how you want to spend your honeymoon. Well, this is why you don't marry a stranger. Like, that's just, you don't do that. Yeah, good advice. <laughs> How many weeks do you think people should know each other before they get married? Um, mm, man, that's a good question. Because I, I know my, uh, my, what's it called? I had a professor in college who knew his wife for like two months and then got married. And the, like, they're still married. And they seem very happy and like normal. So I don't know. I just don't think that. So like eight weeks. Yeah, maybe or at least ninety like... days. Ooh, ninety days is good. I fully support. It's that. a good. It's a good probationary period. That's what they do at work. <laughs> if they could do it at work, they could do it in marriage. <laughs> so now the story is going to get worse. No more fun. All right. All right. So at 5.40 a.m., she was found dead on Laurel Avenue, about a half a block from Margaret Avenue and right down the street from her house. That escalated quickly. Holy shit. Right? She had been strangled with some type of ligature. Her sweater had been removed and placed somewhere near her head. Her sports bra was pulled up, exposing her. Her hair had been brushed and the blood was gone from it. And her head was laying on the curb like it was a pillow, kind of. And her body was extended into the street. Oh. Very strange. Yeah. So Sergeant Venas, I think it is who had been involved in the earlier call at the Thompson's residence, went back to her house to see if she had stopped home at all. He's like, I know she was just in jail. How did this happen? She just got out of jail less than three hours ago. Mm -hmm. So he ran by her house to see if there was any evidence she had been there. There was a struggle, anything. Um, There's no evidence that she had ever stopped at home. So of course, the first suspect is going to be Kathy's brand new husband, right? Yeah, absolutely. But fortunately for him, he had an airtight alibi. He was still in jail. Oh, shit. Okay. Wow. Yeah, since he was on a probation hold, he wasn't getting out like she did. So the police were forced to move on to other suspects. Police quickly narrowed down their investigation to one suspect, Evan Zimmerman, a former police officer that had dated Kathy for some time in 1998 and into 1999. Oh, wow. And Evan was 
53 at this time. The police had heard reports that Evan was obsessed with Kathy and that he had not taken the breakup well. So the police went and found Evan drinking one day at the VFW. I shouldn't say one day, that day. And they went to talk to him about Kathy's death. Evan then gave police permission to search his apartment and his van. Okay, people, do not do this. Don't let <laughs> the police search your stuff. I don't care how innocent you are. You could just have something that just looks suspicious and you can end up in jail. Just don't. Yeah. Yeah. We I have, remember. We have rights for a reason. Have you watched the documentary of um, the guy with like the, the lazy eye and the, the bug teeth? What is his name? Uh, something tool. God damn it. That's going to really bother me. So anyways, they were like trying to pin all of these crimes on the person that was like saying, no, this looks fishy. Like he can't confess to 600 murders that doesn't seem right so like the people that were prosecuting the the confession killer um basically went into the other person's home and like even took what did they take oh yeah his child's like little play kit like a like a doctor's play kit and had Mm -hmm. like a syringe or something that was plastic and like kid-like and they took yeah. that in as like paraphernalia. So Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's the most ridiculous crazy. shit. Yeah. The police are so, crazy. Yeah, they'll they'll do anything. Once people have their mind made up about something, they can find anything to confirm their beliefs. That's because they're not crazy. they're not investigating. They're just confirming what they already decided is true. I love the way you put that. Thank you. That's my psychology lesson for the day. There we go. So, let's see. Police located a hairbrush in Evan's van, and they took that in as evidence, as well as a telephone cord. Then, throughout the next year, police regularly questioned Evan about Kathy's death, but they were never able to elicit the confession that they desired. This, however, did not sway them from pursuing Evan. They were convinced Evan killed Kathy because he couldn't live with her marrying someone else. They're like, that was the breaking point. He snapped. He killed her. Everybody knows it. So eventually they got the DNA back from the hairbrush and two hairs in the hairbrush were a match to Kathy. So they're like, see, we knew it. We're right. You're going to jail. No. So they... They took this evidence and they combined it with what they called Evan's inconsistent statements and statements from others about his obsession and charged Evan with her murder. The state proceeded to trial and laid out their case. The state had a few main points they believed proved Evan's guilt. First, the state contended that Evan showed guilty knowledge. So for people that don't know, guilty knowledge is knowing facts that no one else but the police and the perpetrator would know. So like the little sneaky things they don't tell the public. If you know those things, then they say you have guilty knowledge. So the guilty knowledge they're speaking of in this case were statements Evan apparently made both to police and other members of the community. Evan was reported to have said to numerous people that Kathy was found gutted or disemboweled or gutted like a fish on Margaret Street. One time, he allegedly also added that, yeah, maybe she was strangled too. So this is his alleged guilty knowledge here. The next point that they made was that Evan was obsessed with Kathy. He didn't take the breakup well. They brought witnesses that said, like, yeah, he didn't take it well he really loved her he was crazy about her he didn't want it to end and that he had once told her if he couldn't have her no one could then they found his diary entries that proved that he had not gotten over her and their emails between the two that furthered their theory that they presented and then they went on to describing inconsistent alibi statements 
The state said the first time Evan was questioned, he said he was with Lowell Brown, his neighbor, drinking beer at home. Then he told his co-worker he had been with Ron Gibson and Dan Cox drinking at the VFW that night. Then Lowell Brown said he heard from Evan that he was with Diane Stanky on the night of the murder. So everybody had a different version of where Evan was on the night of the murder. So the police are like, well, he can't nail down where he was. He said he was here. Then other people said he was here. So it was all like a jumbled mess of an alibi. Mm -hmm. So if you can't remember where you were last Tuesday, you might be guilty. Oh, Jesus. Then you have the DNA evidence. So the state put forth the evidence of the hairs and the hairbrush being Kathy's. And then the witness, then next there was a witness for the state who said that he had seen a white van with a blue stripe on the side that appeared to have a female passenger who was either sleeping or unconscious. So the state contended that this was a deceased Kathy being driven to the location where she was found. Their theory was Evan strangled her in the van with the telephone cord. And then drove her to the location and left her there. And they had an expert that said they believed that she died while she was sitting up, that they believed the telephone cord could be the potential murder weapon. So they had an expert that backed this theory. And when the defense suggested that there were other viable suspects, like some inmates that Kathy had been corresponding with pretty regularly and recently... Why? Why is that a thing? What? She has a lot of relationship issues. <laughs> oh, yeah, it seems um, like it. Yeah. Yeah. So the state reported that all of these inmates were incarcerated at the time of her murder, so they couldn't have been a suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And... What else? So the jury was persuaded by this. They took all this evidence in and they were like, well, yeah, clearly he's guilty, right? Oh, okay. I, I, you've convinced me. Like, I'm a little bit on board. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's the story you hear. Yeah, I'll You're buy it. Yeah. yeah, I'll buy that ticket. <laughs> okay. So, fast forward. And the Innocence Project gets involved. And they have a much different view of the case. Okay. As far as the guilty knowledge that Evan was said to have had, the attorneys were quick to point out that none of the statements that Evan was said to have made were even correct. She wasn't cut. She was strangled. She wasn't found on Margaret Street. She was found near Margaret Street, but she wasn't on Margaret Street, and she wasn't cut at all. She was just strangled. Okay. So the Innocence Project is like, we don't know why the original defense attorney didn't say, hey, all this information you're giving them is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Evan's attorneys contested the state's assertion that Evan was obsessed with Kathy at the time of her death. They showed that the diary entries and the emails had already ended in late 2009, months before Kathy's murder. Further, they produced evidence that Evan was still willing to help Kathy out. So everybody said, like, yeah, when they first broke up, he said some crazy things to her, but he was always kind to her. He was always willing to help her. And he often lended her his van. She was allowed to take it without even asking permission. Oh. Yeah. They really did him dirty. Yeah. And then someone even came in and offered testimony. They said, well, what did he say when he found out she was getting married? And they said, he said, oh, well, fuck that bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, I'm over it. It's fine. Let let him marry her. It'll be okay. (laughs) Not my problem anymore. That's exactly how I took it. Like, yeah. I love her, but he can deal with the headaches. Yeah. That's no no offense, fine. Kathy. Oh, no, you're great, Kathy. 
Yeah. The world takes all kinds. <laughs> yes. And then they address the inconsistent alibi statements. So Evan had, in fact, given the state the entire picture of his night at one point in time. And also an important note, the police were regularly questioning Evan either at bars or at home when he was intoxicated about events that took place while he was intoxicated. Yeah, I think Evan I was drinking. Evan was drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. So Evan had actually told the police that that night he was at the VFW drinking with Ron Gibson and Dan Cox. And then mm-hmm. when he left, he tried to go by Diane Stanky's house, but she didn't answer the door for him. Yeah. She's like, no booty calls tonight, Evan. Mm-hmm. And then he went back to his apartment. He yelled up to his neighbor, Lowell Brown, but Lowell ignored him too. I think nobody has time for this tonight. Oh my gosh, so, he's just trying to get it. He's like, I don't want to be alone. Kathy just got married. <laughs> I thought you said fuck that bitch. <laughs> right? Hmm. So <laughs> then he just went inside of his apartment. He's like, I'm just going to take my dog for a walk. So he went and took his dog for a walk. Right. When all else fails, your dog will always be there for you. I was going to say, you have a perfectly beautiful and awesome dog at home and you just don't go straight home. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And contrary to what the state presented at trial, the DNA showed a lot more than they let on. So the state was asked, does the DNA show any probative evidence? And they said, no, it doesn't. Nothing, nothing helpful. Just those two hairs. That was a whole lie. There was, in fact, DNA evidence that excluded Evan as a possible suspect. What? Yeah, there were cigarette butts that were found near Kathy's body, which contained the DNA of an unnamed male. No shit. Yep. And they also did DNA and fingerprint testing on the beer cans that were in the van because they know Kathy drank after she got out of jail. So they're like, she drank after she got out of jail. She couldn't have went and bought beer at this time. So they right. thought maybe she drank with Evan, but no fingerprints, no DNA on the beer cans came back to Kathy. Wow. And Evan easily explained away her hair is being in the hairbrush. She drove his van all the time and used the hairbrush in the van. Right. Yeah. I. And, like, what what did you think that he did with this hairbrush? Like, killed her and then combed her hair and then left? Like, with that same somebody, brush that makes those... Yeah, somebody combed her hair out after she got out of jail, though. I don't know if it was oh. her oh, so or that if it was the happen. killer. Yeah, because there was blood in her hair when she left the jail, and there wasn't when she was found. And she didn't go home. Oh, that's so creepy. So wherever she went, she either combed her hair or the murderer killed her. Killed her. The murderer did kill her. The murderer (laughs) combed her hair. Oh, man. That's a Monday. It is a Monday. Like, the murderer killed her, yes. yes. The murderer did kill her. (laughs) He did. (laughs) And the state also kind of fudged the information about all of state's I'm going to call her Stacy. What is wrong with me? <laughs> all of Kathy's inmate pen pals being incarcerated. So they're like, yeah, they're all incarcerated. That was also a lie. Oh, man. So at least one inmate who I have his name, but I'm not going to name him because he hasn't been named as a suspect. And I don't feel like getting him That's a fair. bunch of life drama in case he's yeah, a good person now. <laughs> don't bring him into this. <laughs> Right. So he had been released to a halfway house about six blocks from Kathy's home about six weeks before her murder. Not only that, but he had been attempting to contact her after his release. And the person that testified for the state knew this information, but they considered a halfway house to still be incarcerated. That that was their story when they got confronted about it. Sir, ma'am, what? Yeah. 
Just lying, no. lying, 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 lying. Or that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. A way to like twist the truth a little bit, assholes. <laughs> you can't twist yeah. the truth when it's somebody's life. No, you like, can't. Like somebody's life like is on the line. And if you put away an innocent person, you're leaving a murderer on the streets to murder more people. Mm-hmm. Facts. And then... Finally, the defense argued that Evans' van had wood paneling on the side. No blue stripes. Mm. Also, they said there was no way that this witness that the state put on could have seen in the van to be like, oh, yeah, I think there's a dead lady in the van. And the witness never identified Evans' van either. He said it was something like that, but Mm, it had a blue stripe. But this was wrong. Then the Innocence Project put forth an expert that argued against the possibility that Kathy was even murdered sitting up. They said there was no way that she was murdered sitting up. Mm -hmm. And they said that the ligature could not have been a telephone cord because it left an imprint that was like webbed and with a buckle. So it was some kind of belt. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So the Innocence Project's took the case back in front of the circuit court judge for a post-conviction hearing. This is where all this information is coming from. They put on their witnesses and everything for the circuit court judge. Like, hey, he is innocent. Yeah. The state lied about this and they lied about this. But the circuit court judge was like, no. Wow. They were not compelled by the defense's theory. Even like the previous defense attorney admitted like, yeah, I, I messed that up. I should have gotten our own expert. I should have fought against this. I should have done this. Like, you're right. I, yeah. you know, I messed up on some of these things. Yeah. And the judge is like, yeah, it doesn't matter. How could you live with yourself? Like having these new, this new information and being a person in power and then just being like, no, I've heard enough. It happens all the time in these appeal cases, though. The judges and a lot of times the DAs, too, will stick with it. Like, I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what proof you have. This is a good conviction and I'm not overturning it. You can fight me. Do you so for convictions, do you think that they need to hit a certain number or is that not a thing? I think it's an ego thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they care about it. They don't want to be wrong. Because and... not all DAs are like that. Some are amazing. And they'll be like, hey, you know what? You're right. Thanks for telling me. Let's fix it. There's a lot yeah. of good DAs like that. But there's a lot of bad ones. They're like, nope. So the circuit court judge basically was like, yeah, you can just stay in prison. I don't care. Wow. But the Innocence Project was like, nope, we're not giving up. So they took the case to the appellate courts and then the case was remanded back to the circuit court for a new trial. The appellate court was like, yeah, no, he's going to get out on bond. We're letting him out. He can go home. You can start a new trial. At least they had some sense. Yeah, they had some sense. And I thought this was interesting. One of the key pieces of evidence to support Evan getting a new trial was the fact that Evan's van was covered in dog hair. Like I said, he had the dog. So he had hair all over the van. And Kathy had a cat. So her sweater was covered in cat hair. There was no cross-contamination of hair. Like, she didn't have one dog hair on her. He didn't have one cat hair in his van. There's no way, like, if you have pets, you know, there's no way. Absolutely. You can't just leave one hair somewhere when you go somewhere. Because if I'm petting my dog before I leave, I'm going to drop his hair somewhere along the way. Yeah, I'm literally eating food and I have his, my dog's hair in my mouth. Like, it's just all Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, Evan was released on bond on June 30th, 2004. And then his new trial began in April 2005. See, the DA still doubled down. Like, nope, we're going to try him. Wow. Wow. Yep. But after five days of testimony, the DA was like, okay, you're right. I'm going to dismiss this. So he did move to dismiss it after five days of testimony. He took a little convincing. 
but he did the right thing in the end. Yeah. And then on April 29th, 2005, Evan was released and he was exonerated. Good. But sadly, he died of cancer on July 1st, 2007. This guy cannot catch a break. Holy shit. No, he was only out for two years. Oh, and so God. this case, like, this is like Evan's part of the case. There's more to it. I'm going to go into it next week. I'm going to cover the case of Angelina Wall next week in Eau Claire. And that's going to link back to this. Ooh, I like it. There's too much to say today. (laughs) Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. Well, wow. Amazing job. I, not that I love what happened, but it was, that's a great story. Um, Did I take you on a roller coaster? I was like, let me put forth the state's case like they did and see if everybody's like, well, yeah, he did it. Yeah, you had me hooked. I bought the ticket. <laughs> then I returned the ticket. <laughs> so, and that's, and that's exactly how it works yeah. in real life. Because yeah. the jury doesn't know any better. They only know what they're told. And if the defense exactly. doesn't argue against it, then they're just right. like, oh, Okay. that makes sense okay nobody's changing my mind like mm-hmm. I can see why they went with it the first time for sure yeah me too yeah. well good job I think that was a really good story to tell and I can't wait for next week thank you oh. you did a great job too your story filled me with anger yeah yeah well yeah. let's go hug our dogs and okay. be filled with love. <laughs> okay. Everybody go hug your dogs. <laughs> go hug your dogs, your iguanas, your cats, whatever you have. We don't discriminate. Do, a, do iguanas let you hug them? No. In fact, I have an iguana story. <laughs> my I'm best here. friend, my, my childhood best friend had two iguanas and they freaked me out. They're mm-hmm. weird. And I would mm-hmm. talk shit to them all the time. Passed by one. <laughs> I passed by their tank one day, and I didn't realize that the top cover was not fully on. It was like mm-hmm. halfway off. And I walked by, and I did this every time I seen the iguanas, and I'm like, "You're ugly." And it jumped from the cage, the tank, and like full-on landed on me like here on my face and neck and like I got so freaked out I just flung the iguana and left <laughs> like, it was so scary I was like Call- you called me ugly for the last time <laughs> <laughs> it's the last time you fucking bitch <laughs> iguanas are smart <laughs> I didn't realize they were smart. (laughs) It's like 11, just like harassing this iguana every day. (laughs) It's just waiting for the perfect moment. Like, I'm going to get you one day. No, my friend was there too. And she saw the whole thing. And she's like, that's what you get. (laughs) It was iguana retaliation. (laughs) Yeah, so maybe don't hug your iguana. Unless you're nice to your iguana. I was going to say. If you can hug your iguana... Send us a picture. Oh, I would love to see that. Or any any pet hugging, I would love to see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that was great. Um, yeah. Like, review, subscribe, and follow us. Send us your center tales. We would love to hear from you. We would love to read your words and um we just love you. Yes, we do. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. I was just waiting for the perfect moment. Like, I'm going to get you one day. <laughs> no, I, my friend was there, too, and she saw the whole thing. And she's like, that's what you get. <laughs> it was iguana retaliation. <laughs> yeah, so maybe don't hug your iguana. Unless you're nice to your iguana. And it lets you. I was going to say can- if you can hug your iguana, send Go us ahead. a picture. Oh, I would love to see that. Or any any pet hugging, I would love to see. Yeah. That would make Yeah. Okay, well, that was right. great. 
Um, yeah. Like, review, subscribe, and follow us. Send us your center tales. We would love to hear from you. We would love to read your words. And um, we just love you. Yes, we do. Yeah. Have a good week. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.